Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets, up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. It is time for spring cleaning. And Quip has an easy way to start. With your brushing habits. Just two minutes a day, twice a day can help pave the way for a healthier mouth and mind. And now the whole family can get refreshed with Quip. The new Kids Quip say that fast a few times, has the same two-minute timer and guiding pulses as our original version and no childish gimmicks so they can brush just like a grown-up. I wish I had guiding pulses as a child, don't you? The new brush is the same as our original version, just tweaked for size down to mouths. Kids are inspired to brush better and more often with oral care that looks and feel like the products the adults in their lives use. And they're proud to use Quip. Help them develop a grown-up routine without childish gimmicks. Kid-friendly features include a smaller brush head, watermelon anti-cavity toothpaste, which should be available to adults too, I would say, and rubber grip handles in colors the little ones love. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. They're backed by over 25,000 dental professionals, and they have thousands of verified five-star reviews. I say all the time why I love Quip. I love the little suction thing that it sticks to the mirror so I don't have clutter on my countertop. And I also love that it looks cool. Like, I... I'd like to think I would have been a child that would like this about Quip as well, that like the sleek modern design would have appealed to me even as a young person. Uh, and, and again, to use something lovely in your life just makes your day better. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash friends right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That is your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. Today's guest is the friend like this, the man you hate to love and love to hate, former Republican practitioner of the dark arts, caster of spells, friend to the animals, and one of my favorite guests, Rick Wilson. In addition to Rick, a special treat, an interview with Jordan Klepper about his new show, Klepper. That will be at the end, but coming right up. Rick Wilson. Rick. Hi, how are you? I am good. I have I have a question for you. You may ask it. Could you tell me about Washington's farewell address? Sure, I could tell you about Washington's farewell address. Or perhaps uh, Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist Church? Uh, I could also tell you about that. But then again, I'm a history <laughs> nerd. And... Uh, and and I, I would challenge this, and I know where you're headed with this, since this is part of the uh, the new Stephen Miller, let's be dicks mm-hmm. about immigration policy. Donald Trump could not tell you one iota of any of these things. He would literally fail this citizenship test with with flaming <laughs> colors if it were put before him. Uh, of course. And, and I also have some vague you know, memories of both of those documents. What I think is interesting about Stephen Miller choosing to pick out those two documents to test potential citizens on is that both of them Mm -hmm. contain ideas about liberty that 
are unfamiliar to the current occupants of the White House. Precisely. Because the Latter-day Ambry Church, if people don't know, is about the separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. It talks about building a wall. Indeed. <laughs> but the wall that Jefferson mentions is the wall between church and state. A, a, a fundamental underpinning of of one of the reasons we worked out as a going concern for 240 plus years now was that that we we, we abandoned two ideas. One was the idea of royalty. Mm-hmm. And one was the idea of official state religion. And we are rapidly moving <laughs> in a direction, I think, where we're about to rediscover uh, the joys of an official state religion, yeah. or at least or at least laws driven by a, 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 uh, a state-ish religion. And, um, and at this point, I wonder what in, in the minds of most Republicans um, is, the, is stopping them from declaring Trump a king. Because in every meaningful way, he's above the law. I I mean, there are what still is sort of fringy, I guess, um, Republican Christian, uh, so-called <laughs> evangelical Christians, um, who are basically calling him like the anointed leader. Um, and, and you're right, the line between that and King is pretty, pretty slim. I wanted to point out something. Uh, else about the documents that they propose to have citizens be quizzed on. Uh, Washington's farewell address has stuff about um, uh, sect, sects and partisans that people that I, that might be one of the reasons why they think it's a good idea to read. And it also, I think, talks about the importance of morality and religion, and maybe that's what they're thinking. But and I did, I confess, I had to look this up. But part of Washington's rant against partisanship is, and I'm going to quote it now, it serves always to distract the public councils and enfeebles the public administration. It agitates the community (laughs) with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles animosity of one part against another, foments occasional riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption. (laughs) which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passions. Projection is a hell of a drug, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it, it, all of these things, you know, there's, there, there, there have been a lot of folks over the years, uh, you know, my friends on the left who are like, oh, you guys are so stuck in the founders and the Constitution and strict interpretation and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's one of the great benefits of the founders and the and the Constitution is that as flawed as part of our operating system was in the beginning, in terms of of not handling slavery and who who was a citizen, actually, ironically, yeah, that I that that the the operating system was meant to be uh, robust and flexible and and to get us to a point where where as long as we still kept the core code. Um, we were going to be okay, and and it's taken us a lot of fits and starts to get there, and it's taken us a lot of you know some, the occasional wrong turn, but the operating system is pretty robust if you follow it. But increasingly, the thing that troubles me is that is that the people on on what was my side of the of the political equation, they've they're they're really now contingent. They're really now all about the immediate gratification. You know, the, the, the fundamental principles of the founders were not owning the libs <laughs> and hating the media, um, as far as I can tell, at least. Um, 
And in fact, the things that the founders really, really opposed um, in terms of, of monarchy and 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 hereditary monarchy that that imposed its will on the on the lives of individuals. Um, we are right now in a in a world where we are creeping back toward that. Um, and and people in my party are cheering it you every called it day. My party, Rick. I think. You know, it, it, Anna, it's been a long haul, and it's it's been something. I I do. I, I mean, I have reached the point where I know that there's no particular salvation path um, for for most of the people that are that are you know in the Trump Republican space. I, I know that there's not really a way for them to to extricate themselves. You know, short of you know the the fire and the shouting and the screaming and the blood, but we are, we're not there yet. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what's interesting to me about that little bit I read from from Washington's farewell address, which also, and I will say from the point of view of a leftist who's not, I also would argue against strict um, interpretation and uh, constructualism. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in the founders' words. I mean, maybe we don't always take them literally, but this is an instance of there being wisdom in the founders' words, right? Because I think he is basically, like, warning against owning the libs. <laughs> like... That's what that little paragraph is about, is about not letting your partisan passions carry you away from the needs of the country. And owning the libs, is that's exactly what that means. That's exactly what that means. And now we've just, we have an entire administration whose key guiding, you know, maxim is owning the libs. Like, like this new, like the this citizenship or or immigration policy that they they rolled out today, they're even admitting that this will never pass, right? Right. Uh, I think that there are a lot of things right now that are on the political horizon for the Trump Republican Party um, that that are going to have a, either a blowback um, or or a, or a countervailing uh, response that. That it makes them end up ultimately being, um, you know, looked at with with ridicule. I mean, look, this immigration bill is never going anywhere, and what's probably going to end up happening, just because of the structural things we've got to handle in this country with the presence of between eleven and fourteen million folks who are not here legally, we're going to probably end up with something in ten years that Stephen Miller and Donald Trump and Seb Gorka and Steve Bannon are going to hate. Just as, you know, just as yesterday, you know, Alabama and and apparently now Missouri coming up, Georgia and Alabama and Missouri are passing these these laws that are so far out, well past the the sanity threshold of what our national debate about abortion has been for for a generation. They're probably going to end up going to the Supreme Court, which will most likely end up finding an explicit rather than an inferred right to an abortion. Good job, guys. Genius move. I don't think John Roberts is going to is going to start a civil war in this country. Yeah, I don't know. I and y'all can thank George W. Bush when that happens. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it is. I, I wish I could chuckle along with you. Um, I know that these bills are outside the discourse, and I know that they're basically owning the lib bills in a way, right? Right. That they're like, we finally want it. We can do this. We finally are going to do this. You know, we've been unleashed. We're going to pass the laws we really want to pass. And these are them. And perhaps projecting forward, 
they are going to ultimately lose or ultimately not just lose, but wind up enshrining actual affirmative right to abortion. But in this moment, what these bills mean to me is what they say about those men's opinion of women. I think that there is a I th- and look, all these bills are based off of a set of model legislation mm-hmm. that um, that that is they're they're essentially running the same playbook on these bills because they want to they want a field test of Roe. Now, in a lot of these states, do these do these you know dudes that are passing these bills and you know by and large it is it, it is mostly dudes. Although the Alabama bill was introduced by a woman, yes, it's true in the Alabama uh, case. I got I got to say I don't think that there's a deeper more sophisticated thing here. I think these guys are playing the you know the, another another variation of the own the libs note. And another variation of the of the you know where this is going to be transgressive, we're going to cause the media to pull their hair out. It's going to cause everybody to lose their minds. And they don't really think about consequences and I, well, clearly. I, I I'm not defending <laughs> them by any stretch, but I think I think they don't think about you know, either the political or social consequences of this or what it indicates about them. They really don't. They really don't care. I've been trying to think about this in the way that you're thinking about it, which is that much in the same way that Trump's election might have lost Latino voters to to the Republican Party for a generation or longer. Um, and And They've been in the process of of figuring out how, can, what by what thin thread can we keep Republican suburban women still voting for us? Right, that thread is getting cut. You know. Look, I I, I spoke to a person yesterday who is who is quite pro life, who actually had engaged in a in a, in, in some pro life litigation in a couple of states over the years, and. She said to me, she goes, this is absolutely going to destroy what's left of the GOP. This is a, this is a pro-life person who is, a, who is in that suburban female professional area. And I, and I think that, I think that the, the, the consequence of this, and it has always been something that Republicans have understood, that a meaningful fraction of college-educated Republican suburban women were, at best, soft pro-life, at, at best. and. And so now that you're putting them on this, on this, you know, point where they have to decide, we are either with the most extraordinarily restrictive version of of pro-life uh, or anti-abortion legislation, or, uh, or, or you know, if you're making this into their one test, I think it's a test they they are probably not going to be happy with. So in this show, sometimes I try to remember to refer to pro-life people as pro-forced birth people. Um, at least in some categories. And I think that the people behind these laws we're talking about are, in fact, pro-forced birth. But I do want to talk about the ironies behind calling yourself pro-life Republican in another venue, which is, I think we're going to war again. Is that right, Rick? Like, <laughs> you know, so here's my feeling on the whole war in situation. Iran, people are curious. That's that's the place. There's a, I know there's a lot of wars happening, but. Yeah. Look, the the idea that we're going to park 120,000 people back in the Gulf is is laughable. And we're not. Um, this this uh idea that this this aircraft carrier group that is transitioning over into the Gulf, yeah, that was a pre-scheduled uh question. 
that were going to be there regardless. John Bolton certainly is finds the idea appealing. The Iran hardliners find the idea appealing. Um, but I will tell you, I think Donald Trump knows that a very, very large fraction of his base, they were sick to death of the fact that their kids were on their third, fourth, fifth, sixth tour. Um, and, you know, I don't want to relitigate the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, but a large portion of Trump's base um, wanted those things to be over. And and they thought that there was a, a, a bipartisan consensus for war in Washington that they really, really hated. Um, and so I think Trump himself is not the main driver of this, which is why he's leaking against his own <laughs> national security advisor. Um, but, you know, do I think there's a a plan for the for a war? Look, there's always a contingency plan, but the the structural ability to do it, 120,000 troops isn't even a, a, a an opening bet if you're going to go and invade and overthrow the government of Iran. That's not even a that's not even in the ballpark of the opening salvo. So I, I think we may stumble into war. We may we may we may end up in a you know look the Persian Gulf is not a wide open space. It's a narrow lane. Um, where there's a lot of shipping traffic and things get messy and people bump into each other and bad things happen. Um, and and so we may end up in a shooting war um, without wanting to be there. I think that you're, you're right about the working class um, white folks in Trump's base. Uh, and also, I mean, working class non-white folks also had their sons and daughters um, sure, sent absolutely. away on their third and fourth um, a tour of duty. And I think you're correct there that that is something that that he personally wants to avoid and also maybe even intuits that that's something that his base is not happy about. And also, I think, in, in you know, your read on what these um, uh, pro-force birth <laughs> bills might do, I, I, I understand that read. Also, we have these tariffs <laughs> Which I know I'm not. I'm, I'm going to let you rant about that in just a second. I promise. You know, it's one it of my favorite topics <laughs> that are demonstrably hurting Trump's base, right? Yep. So we have all of these ways that he is apparently, you know, chipping away at his own base, or him, you know, Trump maybe not not knowing that he's doing this, but the definite actions that the administration is taking are taking, um, are chipping away at the base. Yet, I, st- I, I don't know, Rick. <laughs> like, he still feels like pretty good odds there. Oh, look, uh, Anna, we've talked about this before. The Democrats will do every possible thing they can to seek their own political <laughs> death. They are, the, they are a party that is holistically terrible at politics. They suck at this business. They had 2018 handed to them on a platter because it was mm-hmm. easy because all they had to do was show up. 2020 is not that exercise. So right now, what have Democrats been talking about for the last week? I, I, you know, here's a, here's a simple preview for what they should be doing and what they are doing. The last week of dialogue in the Democratic Party has been about Rashida Tlaib and about, and about Alabama and about gun control and about who are the 97th and 98th candidates to enter the race. If the Democrats were smart, the front runners would be parked in the Midwest right now. Uh, 
They'd be talking to farmers right now because the MAGA people are the ones getting screwed by this trade war. They'd be talking about something that, because the only game in town for 2020 is a referendum on Trump that is based on the electoral college. No matter what Democrats think, no matter what they want, desire, fantasize about, the electoral college will determine the president in the year 2021. The guy taking the oath or the woman taking the oath of office in 2021 will have won at least 271 votes in the electoral college. It is that's the only game plan. Okay. Why are they not in Wisconsin and Michigan and Illinois and Indiana and Iowa right now talking about nothing but the fact that the farmers in those states are getting screwed to the floor? Elizabeth Warren is, I will point out. She's doing that. To her credit. Um, and a lot of them are in Iowa. I think that I, I I have to push back a little bit on your description of what we're talking about because you just described what like Democratic Twitter is talking about and what the cable news networks are talking about. Yeah, but woke Twitter no, is all that but, matters. Like, you know, I wish it was. <laughs> I wish woke Twitter was what mattered as a member, a proud founding member of woke Twitter. But I'm very aware of the fact that it's not. And like when I talk to friends who are on the campaign trail covering it, they report back. And this doesn't this sometimes make it into coverage and sometimes doesn't. But when people ask questions of candidates, they're asking the questions that you're talking about. They're they're talking about health care. They're talking about tariffs. They're talking about the things that matter in their everyday lives. I think these discussions, I just wish my colleagues in the media would do their part to just recognize the debates that you're talking about for the bullshit that they are, right? Like, no one benefits from a conversation about Rashida Tlaib, right? Like, no, I literally— Oh, no, Donald Trump benefits okay, yes, from it. Yes, That's who yes. benefits Donald from. Trump benefits from it. You know, Fox News benefits from it. But, like, go—if you went to Wisconsin and asked someone who is a typical voter, I would say, not necessarily a primary voter and not necessarily someone who shows up at rallies— but you just ask someone, what are the top mm-hmm. issues you care about? You will not hear Rashida Tlaib, right? Oh, no. You will definitely, though, and if you're in Wisconsin, you will hear about the tariffs yeah. and the trade war. You'll hear about things like Foxconn and the promises that all these jobs were going to be rolling back in because Trump. And, and, and the, you know, the, the economy, the, 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 the top-level mer- measure of the economy um, – you know that that Trump wants to 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 blast out every day is oh unemployment is is so fantastic. Well, you know these are people that were not at the areas of the economy that have been prospering. The very very top has done really really well. I know I sound like a filthy <laughs> communist now. The very very top has done really really well because the tax bill was built for them specifically yeah. for 150 hedge fund firms and you know basically 2,000 people in the country. Um, and. The, these guys that 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 come from that Trump base where they used to have a fantastic union job in an auto factory where they could work for their 30 years or their 25 years and retire, you know, and have medical coverage and, and a decent retirement, those, those people thought they were getting that back. Those guys in steel mills thought they were getting their jobs back and the steel mills were all going to reopen. The guys in the coal mines, you know, set aside that coal was a horrible, stupid industry. Those guys in the coal mines all believed that they were going to get their jobs back. They thought that was what was what Trump promised them. And none of that's coming true. And if Democrats cannot convert on those things in the states that matter the most in the Electoral College, because I will just beat the Electoral College thing until it's, until it's dead. 
Um, if they can't convert in those states, in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, then they have no business running. And if they're not in those states talking about those things as a referendum on Donald Trump, it's not, it's not just that you want to try to win these people back. It's that you have to pull back some of that vote. You have to get it back. It is another day where I have come to record the podcast wearing an outfit picked by Stitch Fix. I mean, I guess I picked it as well. Like they sent it to me and I decided that it was an outfit that I wanted to wear. Um, I think it is quite fetching. I'm looking in the control booth. Karen is nodding. It is uh, some some cropped jeans, like a cool shirt with a cutout and then like a long, very lightweight cardigan. It is quite perfect for the weather we have these days. And it's not something I would have picked out myself. Like, I think I would have avoided the cool cutout, probably. Like, that specifically is something I'd be like, ooh, I'm old. I, I can't do cutout T-shirts anymore. But this one, this one kind of works. It works. Uh, I love Stitch Fix because I hate shopping and love clothes. If you are like me, if you love clothes but do not like going into stores, if you do not like having to try things on and then cringe in the mirror— you're going to love Stitch Fix. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash friends and get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash friends. I would argue also, I mean, I, I think you know this about me, which is that I cringe a bit when we talk about bringing people back when and if the person in mind is just a working class white voter because all of those working class people of color that stayed home too. You know, almost as many people of color stayed home as switched their vote from Obama to Trump. And I think that you can you can craft a message. And I would say I think that Elizabeth Warren is trying to do it that is encompasses the concerns of some people that are that have identity as an issue, as a as a as a concern and. Mm-hmm. The blue collar white people that would like to have some kind of program to get some kind of job back. You know, I think they do need to be told it's going to be some kind of job. You know, Trump's genius was to say those exact jobs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I, and I, I think that that question is, is highly relevant, but I'm a reductionist and a math guy. And I'm going to tell you the likely voter pool historically in the in the in the national election, it's going to be about seventy two percent white. Yeah, yep. Yeah, but but Dem- but Democrats haven't run a majority of white votes in like thirty years. I know, but the, the math the math in the swing states that you must win in the electoral college is not going. You're not going to make up those numbers by by increasing African American turnout. There aren't enough Hispanics in those states. Uh, I don't know the seventy thousand in the in the industrial Midwest that made the difference. Yeah, but and look, you want to get them, okay? You have, make you no have mistake, to you want to go get them. Like you have to. But you're probably going to get them no, anyway. But, uh, except, <laughs> except they didn't. You know, but they they. Well, and that and that that in part redounds to Hillary Clinton's absolutely terrible shit tier campaign. And I would argue that it was a shitty campaign in part because she's not doing the thing that I, in my ideal world, is gets, gets talked about, which is that you can't campaign against Donald Trump by just calling him a racist. No, you you yeah, and there's no value proposition. There was no value proposition to folks in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, and Michigan. From Hillary Clinton's and I campaign. And include people of color. People of color are not going to be like, oh, he's a racist. Wow. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, no shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> tell me yeah, something tell I'm me, not tell, aware Give of. me a candidate that's not. Like, I've had to vote for racists for the past, you know, whatever. Like, it, it's not it's not an appeal. So, I mean, I think what we're talking, I think we basically agree. I also am arguing, and I guess this, I don't know why I'm arguing it to you. I should be, like, calling up my friends that work at <laughs> the Post and the Times but we just need to be having a discussion in the mainstream media on cable television. I think it'd be for the it would redound to the benefit of the country, you know, not just the Democratic candidates. If all those hours of coverage that were spent on the latest Trump tweet fart were talking about the issues that that matter to people, you know. I know, you know this is you know like a I stupid. Love you, but are you new? Are you new here? <laughs> this, I know, and I'm saying I know. I'm, I'm, I feel dumb saying this out loud, right? I feel absolutely stupid saying it out loud because I've talked about it. I mean, I feel like it's been you know the thing we talk about for years now. Sure. But, I mean, our country is broken. It is broken, uh-huh. and it's not going to get fixed by. I don't see anything happening in the media that will f- lead to fixing it. Like the media will break this well, even if candidates don't. It will stay broken. I, I think it's vital that the Democratic campaign uh, of whoever the nominee turns out to be, okay, they're still going to have to get back some of these votes because once again, with my obsession, my my Ahab obsession. <laughs> Talk about your great white whale there. You know, that didn't end well, by the way. The, 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 the problem they face is that, you know, Trump's campaign and the people assisting his campaign from every country um, correctly identified that they could suppress African-American turnout and they could encourage um, white, un- less likely white voter turnout and they could flip enough mostly white, mostly working class Democrats, um, you know, or either keep them home or bring them out. And part of that, part of that, the, the part of the way you have a countervailing strategy to that is you've got to go and work in those states. You cannot take Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or Ohio for granted. You can't take Florida for granted. I mean, look, Florida and Ohio. If I were the Democrats, I would be worried as hell about both of those states because Republicans in Florida are pretty fucking good at winning elections, <laughs> and and Democrats. Historically, unless you get a once in a generation candidate like an Obama, you know, they pretty much get the floor clean. I would also point out that's because the GOP cheats. I mean, not like actively cheats, but like, you know, I mean, gerrymandering and and voter suppression are. are... But but gerrymandering doesn't matter in statewide races and Democrats get their asses kicked in statewide races in Florida routinely. I mean, we beat them like a cheap drum in this state over and over again because they're bad at campaigning and they don't understand the state. I mean, things have been close. There have been Democrats that have had close races there. If you go out in the last, in the last, say, twenty years of statewide campaigning here, um, Barack Obama went ran twice and 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 won. Um, Bill Nelson, who yeah. was you know eight hundred and seventy five years old, was their main statewide poll for a long time. And you know the fact that they won a single race statewide. Uh, in the cabinet for the first time in t- almost 20 years in Florida, um, you know, turned out to be a bit of a, a bit of a miracle for them. They didn't expect to do that. It was an accident. They they literally did not expect to win that seat. They had no 
planning for it. I just feel like as much as I love to beat on my own, you know, people too about being bad at running races, like there is an element of voter suppression and what I would consider kind of cheating that that's on the other side that we can't ignore. But I also want to move on because I think we basically agree about this stuff, about what the strategy should be. And I don't know why we're not mm-hmm. the people running everything. Everything would be great. Oh, well. <laughs> if we were just running everything, people would be happy. You know, there would be uh, joy and Puppies dancing, and kittens everywhere. Kittens, puppies, horses, unicorns. Anyway, I kind of want to roll back a little bit because as angry as I am about cable news and Twitter obsession with, you know, the the daily tweet fart, I mean, I'm going to start using that. I, I really like it. There are things about this administration that are kind of insidery baseball, but that deserve attention, right? Sure. Like, let's just say denying that there's such a thing as balance of power or oversight. I think that's bad, you know? <laughs> oh, uh, look, uh, the, 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 the things that Republicans lost their damn minds about with Barack Obama and screamed on cable television that he was an emergent yep. dictator and that he was crushing uh, freedom and democracy in this country and that he was an authoritarian from the, from the left. And those things compared to Trump's everyday behavior were about a two. On the scale, and they did turn out voters talking about that. And every day, Trump is like, "I want, I, I want to, I want uh, this to go to 11. <laughs> Neither of us can probably do a really good Trump imitation because I'm not even going to try. But like, so here's something that kind of puzzles me, though. I, they turned out voters based on those conspiracy theories and that anger and that you know Obama wants to sure. be a, you know socialist Muslim dictator. So part of me is like, "Hey guys, you know, folks." Maybe we could talk about that, too. Like, I don't want to. I mean, I understand the dangers of making this about an impeachment hunt. And I understand the dangers of making this about, you know, Donald Trump is a bad guy. Right. But I feel like Democrats are just like giving up the whole table. You know, they're just like folding on the whole issue of whether or not we can use the tools of government oversight here. Well, the idea that 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 Congress has no ability to investigate the executive branch, the the idea that Congress has no uh, no prerogatives uh, of any kind when it comes to executive power or oversight, is, I believe, a mortal danger. Yes. To the country. Right. And I believe, and I believe, and I've said this to Republicans, and that I get this sort of like, yeah, but you know, it's Trump, man. What mm-hmm. do you do? Um, I, I've said this to them. Imagine someday when it's President Harris or President Booker or President Biden or whomever, and they do the same exact shit to you, where they basically tell you, "Oh, fuck off! You can't investigate us." Where they basically tell you, "Ah, oh, fuck off! We're doing this by executive order. Here we go." Um, and I think that you're going to end up with, with, you know, they're never going to realize that these intrusions on the balance of power in a tripartite government, um, are really, really bad out, have really, really bad outcomes until they get some pain on it. And I think that, that they've convinced themselves that, that, you know, Trump or Trumpism will rule forever and we better get while the getting is good. 
So this Nancy Pelosi plan that appears to be following what you've suggested, right? Like, play to the center. Uh, don't put impeachment on the table at all. Uh, don't don't muscle in. Like, I mean, I guess what I hear you in your response when you're talking about what the Republican response is or should be is that that's who should be calling for oversight now. I mean, I don't. I just don't know. Like. This well, seems I think, very I, I bad. Think, I think there are a couple <laughs> things here. Uh, I think the Democrats should have been in court the millisecond Barr sent that four-page letter. Hmm. They should have been in court that second. This thing is going to have to get litigated. It's going to have to get litigated quickly. They're going to have to find arguments to pull this thing along um, in, in in such a way that, that um, they're able to get uh, actual decisions that force the administration to do things. Because the, the the administration right now, Democrats trying to litigate this through the press alone will lose. Yeah. Trump will simply go out and take a shit on the Oval Office floor and say, look at the poopy I made. And everybody will talk about that for a month and it'll get distracted from the real world. Um, and they're trying to run out the clock on all these things. They also do need to hold these people accountable. They need to exercise congressional prerogatives on holding these people accountable and and they need to find them. They need to. They need to. I mean, and I know the arrest question is like a like a you know a, a shaky idea, but there are powers that Congress has inherently that they need to exercise. If you don't exercise those powers, they're going to lose those powers. And that's my. I think. See, I have a dark vision about this, Rick. Like, I feel like of all the things we've talked about, of all like the tyrannical. Things that and racist things that Trump wants to do or says Yay. he wants to do. <laughs> My real concern here is actually the behavior of the Democrats, because there is a timeline in which Democrats sit around and wait for the next election, right? Sure. And Trump wins again, mm -hmm. and the transformation of our judiciary into just an auxiliary of the Federalist Society, you know, becomes complete. Um, and we wind up in a universe where some of the stuff that is said to just own the libs starts to become policy. Mm -hmm. Talk me down. <laughs> well, look, the, the, the difficulty we face in... In the exercise of their power, is that the base wants the one thing that doesn't do anything. Impeachment? They want impeachment, and I get it. And woke yeah. Twitter wants impeachment, and they will settle for nothing less. I am woke Twitter. I would I accept oversight. Are. But here's 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 I mean here's here's my point that I I try to make to these folks who get all uppity about it and get all yelly about it. So what if you impeach him in the House? So what? What do you think happens then? Nothing happens. Nothing at all changes, except that you can never do another investigation, except that the wind has gone out of the sails of any kind of probe into them from the congressional side. They, and, and Pelosi and these guys, I think, they're, they're, I think they are wise to avoid directly going to impeachment, but I think they need to up the tempo and up the consequences pretty quickly. They also need to basically start um, working with their colleagues in the Senate where everything comes to a fucking halt. 
Mm-hmm. Okay? Everything comes to a fucking halt. No more nominations for judges. They all blue card everything. They grind the gears hard. And and if they don't understand that they've got power, well, let me help you. You have power. There's lots of power there. There's lots of ability there, but they have to exercise it. They have to have a multi, multi-track strategy. They have to be in court. They should have been in court, as I said, the minute that bar memo came out, they knew exactly what they were going to face, a stonewall from everything. They need to be litigating with this guy on every front. They need to be dragging these people up on every single thing. Remember, it's not just the showy hearings that the that the, the Trump's people can have, you know, or can they can put their finger up and go screw you. They've got to be in front of Congress for a million small things. Turn every single one of those things into torture. Yeah, I mean. I guess, I mean, the way that you talked me down before, I'm just going to remember right now, is it was like there's still time to start doing all these, to to really dig in on all these investigations. And that will be the way that, that Democrats can switch the conversation from deep state coup to right. maybe just he's corrupt, right? Like stop mm-hmm. arguing about whether or not he should be president and start dealing with the fact that like there, there are these very obviously bad, like corrupt. Yeah, corrupt is the thing. The corrupt is the word I want, I believe. Sure. You know, things happening that maybe aren't moral outrages on the same level as some of the other things that Trump has done, but that demand oversight. I I will tell you, like, full disclosure, the conversations at Crooked HQ are pretty dark right now <laughs> <laughs> about whether or not the Democrats have lost their window to do this that they I set think the window up. is closing okay I think the window is closing quickly um and I again the number one thing they have to do is get this into court they have got to get this into court because there's going to be a point where where no matter what the middle finger extended is if the full force of the judiciary is behind this there will be things that have to happen you know we we still have at least a little time left on that clock. Um, yeah, but every day that's wasted by woke Twitter screaming for impeachment. Not and woke not for Twitter's fault. It's Nancy Pelosi's fault. I not know. woke Twitter's fault. Damn it! Uh, <laughs> uh, look, every day though that they wait, and that and that stuff ticks away, is a day they don't have to put, drag people up for hearings. It's a day they don't have to sanction people. I mean, so, I really and honestly, Rick. Like, I mean, I know you don't like my colleagues on woke Twitter, but seriously, this is as much Jerry Nadler's and Nancy Pelosi's fault as it is, you know, Sean McElway's. Like, or I don't even think it's his fault. Like, I I think there are plenty of people out there screaming for impeachment that would be happy with hearings. I really do. But let's not argue. I want to move on. <laughs> I want to okay. move on. I feel like. This has become a little bit of like the Rick talks on a down hour sometimes here. Okay. Uh, and so I was thinking that maybe we could make a regular feature of you letting me know what level of alarm I should be at. Okay. I like it. I yeah. like it. Um, <laughs> uh, sort of a DEFCON question. Yeah, it's a DEFCON. DEFCON, you know, uh, and I don't know what the poles of that would be. Exactly. One is the worst. One is when the one is DEFCON. One is when the nuclear weapons have been cracking off, and you need SPF two billion. 
Okay. Um, yeah. And you know, I need that normally. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm going to put us at about a DEF CON 2 right now, honestly. Okay. We All are right. in a full scale constitutional crisis. Um, and, and Congress, you know, look, the slow erosion of congressional power has been going on with both parties since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, Watergate was sort of an, uh, sort of a moment where it flared back up, but they have been largely trying to hand over their power to the executive branch for two generations. And part of that is an artifact of Johnson being such a good legislative manipulator. Um, part of it was during Reagan, Republicans were frustrated that they didn't have majorities in the House and Senate simultaneously at any point or the House at all. Um, and and they wanted to keep kicking stuff over to the executive. Part of it was Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were were frustrated with their Republicans, and, and you know, uh, so this migration of power to the executive has gone on for a long time. And you need a crisis moment where where the other branch can seize back that power. You have that moment. It is here. It is present. It is a, it is in our face right now. So the question is, will the Democrats do it? Um, by staying on, by staying focused, and by doing all the things that are politically ouchy, and not falling victim to this like idea that the voters want us to work together to accomplish good things for the people. <laughs> Shit, that's the <laughs> stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. Yeah, voters want a show. They want a spectacle. They want a referendum in 2020 on Donald Trump. And Republicans want a referendum on the affirmative, and Democrats should want a referendum on the negative. Nobody's going to vote for a single candidate based on a policy in this election. They'll base they'll do it based on negative outcomes from things that have happened under Trump, like healthcare, you having your pre-existing taken away. But that still redounds back to being a referendum on Donald Trump. And that's what all re-elections are about, is a referendum on the incumbent. If you don't make it about that, you're losing. Democrats in the House have an opportunity to make the case that the referendum has to be framed on corruption. The referendum has to be framed on foreign influence. The referendum has to be framed on presidential instability. The referendum has to be framed on the on the bad things that Trump administration policies have resulted for in the minds and lives and hearts of those swing voters in those swing states. And there's still time. <laughs> As I like to say, it's too late to work within the system and too soon to start shooting motherfuckers. But every week's a different story. You know, that's actually, you said that the very first podcast we did together. So I guess I there's did. just a scale, like in even that. Um, so <laughs> thank you so much, Rick. Absolutely. Always love talking to you. We will talk again soon. Yes. And I will put on my sunscreen. <laughs> <laughs> always, always. Everyone wants their home to look and feel great. Luckily, snow makes that incredibly simple. They create trend-proof, beautiful, functional pieces made for how you actually live. Whether you just got the keys to your first place or you're looking to upgrade the pieces you've had before, snow has home goods that are practical and striking to look at. Snow makes luxury essentials for every room in your home without the markup. They partner directly with master craftsmen to create beautiful, simple products that are made to last. They have award-winning sheets and fluffy duvets, luxurious air-spun cotton towels and robes. And they also have durable, dishwasher-safe porcelain dinnerware and wine glasses with titanium-enforced stems. And let me tell you, in my drinking days, I would have needed those titanium-enforced stems. 
Snow has received rave reviews from Vogue, Fast Company, Apartment Therapy, and more. It is the home collection of your dreams, priced for your reality. I put a shout out for the dark gray linen duvet cover. Dark gray linen turns out if you are a pet owner, I would just say this is what you need. You need something that is not going to need to be ironed, <laughs> something that has is rumpled, you know, like on purpose. And the dark gray, like we have multicolored pets and it manages to sort of disguise all of the fur. And yes, all of our pets sleep on the bed. What's the point of having pets if you don't let them sleep on the bed? That is my belief. And right now, if you would like to get those sheets or something else, Snow is offering my listeners $30 off your first purchase of $150 or more when you go to snowhome.com slash friends. That's S-N-O-W-E home.com slash friends to get $30 off your first order. Again, visit snowhome.com slash friends. This episode is brought to you by Hask. Hask hair care products are used on more Hollywood film and TV sets than any other brand. Hask offers high-performance formulas at affordable price points, including shampoos, conditioners, deep conditioners, shine oils, and dry shampoos, all designed to treat and repair all different kinds of hair types, made from quality ingredients and sourced from around the globe. I have shared this before, but I will share it again. I got a huge box of Hask products to try out. And it is just me and my husband uh, that take showers in my home. And uh, we both have the exact same kind of hair, which is super thin, uh, fine hair. And so 80, 90 percent of what was in the box, like, wasn't for us. Like, we both immediately grabbed the texturizing and thickening stuff. And in fact, my husband's been using the thickening shampoo. I can tell because he's the kind of guy who squeezes the bottle and then doesn't let it unsqueeze, you know, like it's sort of like dented. And I, I like to have the bottle, you know, expand back up. Anyway, I sent everything else that wasn't for fine hair to my in-laws and the many, many women that live in that neighborhood. They're all related. I mean, they all uh, my sister's in-law both live like in the same on the same street as my mother-in-law. And one of my sister's in-law has three daughters. So lots of hair that needs to be taken care of. I have gotten nothing but rave reviews, especially for my niece that has super thick curly hair uh, that can sometimes be kind of like frizzy. My sister-in-law tried out one of the hair masks on her, and apparently she both loved making herself a little bathtub mohawk with it, uh, and it did her hair great. So all kinds of different things for any kind of hair type you might have. From Hask. They are doing dry shampoos for every kind of hair type as well. Like you may not realize that dry shampoo can come for different hair types. Um, I will be honest, I kept a few of those for myself. You can find it on Amazon and you can save 15% off when you use the special coupon code at checkout 15WFRIENDS for that dry shampoo to get 15% off. That's 15WFRIENDS off Hask dry shampoo at amazon.com. For information on all those other products, go to haskbeauty.com. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, it is good to talk to you. I have to tell you some full disclosure, which is I didn't get a screener for your show. What? Um, I know, but oh, I, I decided is... to come into this interview with the attitude of like, that that makes me like the rest of America. So... <laughs> oh, what? That's a, that feels like a shout across oh, the bow. Well, okay, it's wow. a yet. You're saying nobody's watching? You're saying America isn't watching? Well, a yet. Wow. That's a yet. That's a yet. Okay. 
Okay, I'll, I'll take that. Because you're going to have to tell me what, what it's about. Says, All right, that I can do. Yes. Well, because the it. screener will only give you a taste. Right. What, what is going to be out there, I think it, what unfolds is a beautiful tapestry that is this country. <laughs> and I am its its foppish protagonist moving through. There's tastes um, and tapestries and protagonists. There's so much going on. <laughs> yes. Who knew? This is, sounds exactly like a Comedy Central show. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me tell you what you maybe would have seen. Okay. This is, you know, I got to do a show behind the desk. I got to do field pieces on The Daily Show. And this was an opportunity to leave that desk, go out into the world, and start telling stories. So we found compelling stories. And what we realized we started to tell was we started to tell stories of activism. And so essentially, this season, I kind of embed with a bunch of different activist movements. People are fighting back against something. We have vets who are fighting back against PTSD. We have environmentalists who are chaining themselves to pipelines. We have uh, undocumented students who are marching to try to get education. And so this was sort of an opportunity for me to be right there with these groups who are actually doing something from a guy who's used to being in New York, who's not often doing much. And of course, the one the, the thing that people most associate with activism is hilarity, right? That's, <laughs> exactly. That's what I, when, when I think of activism, I'm like, there's comedy there. So there's so much comedy in undocumented <laughs> students who are being denied the right to uh, higher education. It's like yeah. this thing is constantly being talked about, about and late night shows all the time. That's true. And I want to be clear, like I, I consider myself kind of a, a I definitely was an activist in, in my younger days. I w- was like, uh, you know, had my signs, did some street theater even. Um, Ooh. I know. Uh, it was a very exciting time. It was actually during the- Were you Nita- also in an improv group? I no, feel like if you're well, doing street you know, theater, you're don't. probably also in an improv group. No one needs to know. Um, <laughs> and I, then I became a journalist, and now I feel like I've kind of come full circle, and I, I've, I've, I've gone to the marches and stuff. But I will tell you that one of the reasons I kind of left activism as my main thing is that it is, it is not a fun place, right? It is a kind of- very serious environment. And I you know people make jokes all the time and there's there's gallows humor in almost every group that's going to take on a giant, right? Like you have to have some humor. But but do tell me like how are you mining humor from stuff that is not just serious but earnest? Yeah, I think like it, it was a it was a challenge for us, you know, we wanted to we wanted to drop some of the irony that we've often gone out and done pieces with. You usually use that irony to, to wield it. I play a little bit of a, a, a dumber character, and there's often comedy to be found with that. And with this series, we kind of wanted to strip away from that and just see what was actually happening, actually document it, be there when things happen. And and it's tough. Uh, some situations you walk into, and you shouldn't be making jokes. I walked into a bunker in Tijuana where there's deported veterans who are taken away from their family, and all they want to do is come back to America. And when you walk into that bunker, there's not a space for jokes, and there shouldn't be. And I think we took that as a challenge of, like, we still want to tell this story. These are compelling stories. We're on a comedy network. I am a comedian. Let's, like, I think the fact that I am uh, this fish out of water, and I'm along for the ride with some of these activist movements. Like what you see through my often discomfort is <laughs> humor, and is how hard this can be. Like, trust me, I I, I went down into th- this week's episode. I, I go down to the bayou, and I hop in a boat with some environmentalists who 
in the middle of the night, sneak out on a boat, ride for an hour in the bayou to try to chain themselves to a pipeline. The boat capsizes. We find ourselves on shore, hiding from police, getting attacked by mosquitoes. And it sucks. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't like it. I don't like being there. I sympathize with the cause. I give a big thumbs up, but I hate it. And I think there's humor to be had in, in what I'd like to think of myself as a, a good guy trying to do good, but doing good can be hard. And in that struggle, I think there's, there's a lot of humor to be mined. So oftentimes, long story short, the joke is on me. You know, Jordan, that really sounds dangerously like journalism that you're doing. Don't say it. Don't say mm. that. <laughs> I mean, you know, honestly, we talk a lot about that. I, I often get that question. I think it's I, you know, I, I clearly need to make it very clear that we are getting these stories from journalists who actually go out there, find these stories. I think I am, I am somebody who is a comedian who wants to go there and see it up close. I think as we found ourselves doing not a field piece, but what felt more like a documentary, it was important for us to be there when stuff happened. And then to, you know, through my own lens, kind of uh, relay what that story is. Some might call that journalism. I call it intrepid comedian name. <laughs> <laughs> to me, though, it really does sound like journalism. And it sounds a little bit like, I mean, to just be totally frank, like the kind of journalism that I try to do. I'm not a breaking stories type of person. Um, I admire and respect the people that do do that kind of journalism. Um, but I've mm -hmm. always thought of myself as a kind of avatar for a reader or a viewer. And that my job is to go out and like figure out, like, you know, the basic story about this thing that I'm experiencing or doing. I'm going to show you something that maybe you didn't see. I'm going to show you a side of it, you know, that comes from my particular experience. Like, and that's, I think, pretty much exactly what you're doing. But here's a difference, and I think this is something that I try to do and that you're doing, and maybe not enough journalists do it, which is foreground the fact that I'm an avatar. I don't know everything. I am here to learn as much as you are, and I have a point of view. I actually, that's... That's that feels exactly like the experience I have. I, I will say I like the term avatar. One, I think if you label me a journalist, I'm going to be out of work in a couple of years. So that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you label me an avatar. It's like now there is a future in that profession. It's big, um, big blue future, really. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that I think that is true. I think it's really important for an audience to see, like, understand that I am somebody with a point of view. I have my own biases. I'm walking in here with uh, a perspective. I uh, I am naive to things, but hopefully we can be very open. About that, I think with this this whole series, I lay that out on the line. Like, look, I have a TV show. I'm a guy with privilege who has a TV show who's coming in here and dropping in for four days, uh, and I'm going to make jokes. I'm going to be sympathetic and listen to this story, but I'm also going to craft it for that show. Now, let's see what we can experience. And and I think if people understand that, like, I, I think what what I like so much about that idea of Avatar is like, hopefully, I can take you through that story. You can see a see a person maybe like yourself at home who is at home, who is on a couch, who is curious about these things that are happening out there, and they can watch somebody want to be a part of that and see what that journey actually looks like. I, I do think that people who are listening right now are, are your target audience because um, one way that I describe who, who I think of as my, my main audience is uh, well-meaning white people. Uh, who are both, you know, the biggest problem in America, but also offer some some solutions. And I did hear you say something in, in that last response that is, I don't hear from, quote unquote, real journalists enough, which is you just even used the word privilege. And that is something that, like, I talk about a lot. I think people in my audience are kind of getting their heads around 
but it's a relatively, I think, new concert, concert, a relatively new concept for people that think of themselves as unbiased, who think they're mm-hmm. this, there to just tell a story. So how does this idea of privilege, like, where did it come up for you? Like, how did that come well, to be something that you wanted to incorporate into your work? Well, I was, I'll tell you, it became kind of front and center for a lot of episodes. I think if, you know, the goal of this was for me to be honest with myself and to go out and tell these stories. And I can't get around the fact that I'm a white guy who has a TV show, and that is a privilege. I get to walk around. I get to point the camera in the direction I want to point it in. And I think I wanted to address that. I don't think that nullifies me from having an opinion, but I think I need to uh, be able to articulate and and let that be a part of the story. And throughout this story, um, you know, as a comedian, I wanted to go there and I wanted people to tell their stories and not be a part of necessarily the activist movements as they were going on. Um, but I kept getting confronted from people. I, I did an entire episode on the invisibility of uh, Native Americans in the media and in pop culture. And I talked to a lot of people, a lot of Native Americans. I talked to an artist, uh, Chinupa Hanska, who was great and and to my face many times was like, we can make jokes here, but you have a privilege and you need to weaponize that privilege. And if you're not doing that, you're, uh, that's a choice that you're making and you need to address that. And we can joke around that. And I will say that led me into another episode where I was with undocumented students who, DACA students and undocumented students who can't get into uh, major colleges in Georgia. And there was a protest. And there was a uh, a question at that point of like, do I join this protest and risk being arrested or do I sit this thing out? And there was not pressure put on me at that, posi- at, at that time. But I had to address the fact that it was like, I do have a privilege that I am here. I can use that. (laughs) And to be completely blunt, you talk about the well-meaning white people who are listening at home. Thank you. Hi, mom. (laughs) Uh, I will say, (laughs) I I feel, I feel corny, but I'm, I'm in Atlanta and I'm, I'm doing a story on these students and I know the, uh, that they're going to go into a protest and potentially get arrested. And these students are literally studying protest movements, the civil rights movement, direct actions, the reading, the, the words of Martin Luther King, the reading letter from a Birmingham jail that night, I'm reading letter from a Birmingham jail. And if you haven't reread that, there is a, a, big old part of that that talks about well-meaning white people mm-hmm. who want to do good but don't do anything and that they're part of the problem. And as I read that, like it felt like it was written directly to me at the time where it's like, I, but I'm a good person. I'm a nice guy. I'm an advocate. But if I'm not speaking, then I'm making a choice not to speak. And again, I think that's something within this series that we we have to address. And honestly, there's humor in that. I, I, think, I think there's a lot of well-meaning white people out there who are struggling with that, who are asking themselves that question, who want to step aside and feel like that's the polite thing to do or want to be active and wonder if they're stepping on people's toes. And I think there's like, there's humor to be found and there's humanity to be found in like that struggle that a lot of well-meaning white people have trying to figure out where is their place in this this unique time we're in. And, you know, I wasn't joking, and I know you probably have this experience as well, that, that people do not associate <laughs> activism and talking about privilege and being a social justice warrior, those are not considered hilarious activities, right? Um, <laughs> right. Those are sometimes considered the opposite of funny. Uh, a lot of people on the right tend to use examples from those activities as um, proof that people on the left, people that want to, want to be well-meaning white people, are humorless. But I, you know, think, and this is one of the premises of this show, is that those things— the reason why they are, or they can feel earnest is that they are uncomfortable. Um, but 
it's also true that the best comedy comes from discomfort, right? Like, I think, I don't know, I'm not the expert, but I— Well, I, I, I would combine that with the thing I would say it comes from discomfort and it comes from earnestness. I think, like, what, what you have and what you're describing, like— Irony is fun. It's fun to play with, but it puts you at a distance, and it's like a, it's a it's a quick hit. I think the most, for me, the art that has the most resonance speaks to some sort of truth, and there's your earnestness. Um, and hopefully, if it's an uncomfortable truth, then you're you're hopefully revealing something in that discomfort. And so, I mean, us, we we knew we were heading out to do something that was going to be more difficult. And it's really easy to sit at home and make a joke about, you know, Donald Trump and him being orange and what have you. And you're going to get a laugh and yay, we all have heard that joke. But there are there are deeper, more uncomfortable things to go into. And I think just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean <laughs> there's not humor to be found. In fact, there's more humor to be found because I think a lot of people are struggling with these ideas that we're talking about right now. How do you wield this privilege? How do you become part of a movement? Are you a good person if you want to be part of that movement, but you don't want to go out there and put your body on the line? Can you just do this from home? Like These are earnest questions people have, and I think there's a lot to be mined from there that people haven't, haven't approached and haven't really dealt with. The idea of putting your body on the line, the idea of getting out from behind a desk, even if it's a desk on a a late night comedy show, is something we also talk about here. I do think that there are ways you can be active and make a difference, not uh, leaving your house. Um, And there are people who can't leave their house, right? And they have to find ways to use their voice um, in online or in the paper or broadcasting a podcast. But for the most part, I actually, you know, I, I've read Letter from a Birmingham Jail, and I do believe that change happens when white people, privileged people, do put their bodies on the line. Like there is something about the physical presence of saying, I am standing with you, that makes, makes it impossible for society to ignore that problem. And I kind of want to draw this back to sort of talking about comedy a little again, because you know, obviously, like with Trump's election, there was kind of this explosion of like late night comedy becoming even more political. But it was political before, right? But um, mm-hmm. you know, Seth Meyers doing his desk pieces, the the uh, the close up. Uh, Sam B's uh, do, does does not just desk stuff; she actually goes out in the field too. But and then there's just you know whatever comedians. I think that can feel really cathartic, right? Sure to watch another well-meaning white person make jokes about your common enemy, right? Mm-hmm. But I do worry, I guess I'm saying, I, I guess what I'm saying is that how can we get more people out from behind their desks? Because it can feel like activism. I think I've heard someone call it claptivism, like where if you're clapping, you're doing something like, oh, that's so funny. Yes, orange man, you know? <laughs> um how do we get people out of the seats, though? Not just from out of behind a desk, but out of those seats. Well, I mean, I think I think you're right. I think a lot of people, it's easy to be critical of the late night comedians who are, are just saying that one thing and we all clap in a room. I think there is something very cathartic about that. I think people are scared. People are, are nervous. And sometimes uh, a joke is a quick way to the truth. And when you hear an audience respond to that, like they feel less alone. I mm-hmm. think that's a good thing. Um but you're right. It's pretty easy for people to engage with that and think they're doing something because they're they're laughing, they're there. As far as comedians go, I don't know. I think there's a place for you know late night comedy and a, a place that consistently addresses the news that's happening of the day from behind a desk. I think we are in a unique time right now where 
it's we're, we have a we have a country that ever since the last election, people are like, what's actually happening? What's going on in real America? <laughs> There's a desire for people to understand these other people, these people that you go home for Thanksgiving but never listen to. What are they actually like? I think there is a almost a comical yearning for us to have that understanding. And it is also mixing with a, a prime time of people caring about things like documentaries and understanding like more compelling stories. And so I do think there's space for comedians, for people, for artists to leave their comforts and try to make sense of this thing that feels more chaotic out into the world. Whether that is spurring people into activism, I don't know. I think it's I think it's more so spurring people into connection and engaging. I think it's really easy. And I again I empathize. I'm part of it. I'm I'm a I'm a guy who lives in New York. I've been on these late night shows. I know these people. You live in New York. You are in a bubble, 100%. It's hard to go outside of that. It's hard to engage. I think we need to. I think it's cathartic. It also it also brings you a little bit of hope when you when you just read your tweets. You go to your office in Manhattan, you just get angry and you you build a wall around Alabama in your mind. Mm-hmm. You you hear all of this coming out and you're like, "Well, that's a terrible state. I'll never go there. We ha- we have it fixed in New York. Let's build that wall." Mm-hmm. Um build that wall. When it you sounds go familiar. There, it sounds familiar, but we're all doing it. <laughs> yeah. And I think like when you actually get out there, trust me, it's not fun to always stay in La Quinta Inns when you could be uh, <laughs> at your nice little apartment with your wife. Uh but but it is inspiring to engage with people and people who are fighting, who even if they're not fighting for the things that you care about, you see that there are other people who are who are engaged, who are three-dimensional, and who are not just the, the headline that you maybe read, read 200 miles away. You know, we've been talking about this all in the context of, of your show and, and, and the, the work that is happening there. But I kind of want to rewind a little bit to this talk about privilege because I'm curious about your personal journey about that. Because I know for me, like I knew what privilege was, you know, five, six years ago. Um, I knew what the culture of white supremacy was. But it has been a true education for me in the past two years to speak to people that are on the other side of those things more often. Mm-hmm. Um, to realize mm-hmm. how, I mean, for me, how little it matters to be a well-meaning white person. I mean, it's better than being an ill-meaning white person, I guess, right? Um, but I think yes. I think I think like <laughs> do no harm. I think there's <laughs> that's but, but that's, for that's, you, that's like, like the, the, did you didn't spring into this world, you know, fully formed and already with an idea that you wanted to lift up, you know, marginalized voices and you wanted to weaponize your privilege. Like, is there something that happened for you that brought you to that place? I think there is. Like, I haven't had to grapple with it. Uh, or, or really grapple with it until this past year, I think. Like, I was aware of it, but I, like a lot of other well-meaning white people, on on both sides of the aisle, like, you have your own story, and your own story might not be one of the successes you think you deserve. And when you hear people talk about privilege, you might push back against that just because you're like, well, do I have privilege? Because I don't have these other things that I thought I would get with privilege. And so I empathize with people who might be on the other side of this argument who are like, I hate that people talk about my privilege when I'm working 12 hours a day just trying to pay the rent. And it's like, I, I get that. I understand where you're coming from. And I think, like, I understand that I have a privilege even in the entertainment industry, but I don't think I grappled with it until until this show. And not to make it about this show, but but I did go out there with with the idea of making some fun jokes. And, and I'm going to go to these places, find some humor, and go from there. 
And the, one of the first things we filmed was in the bayou with these environmentalists, and they didn't have a sense of humor about what was going on to their <laughs> land. They didn't have, they I, were I indigenous women who started a group, and they're like, guess what? People are dying in our community. Also, our land is being destroyed, and all of the money is going to uh, big business and white folks who get to destroy Louisiana. And we're trying to make a difference here. And you're coming down, and you're going to make jokes. And they literally say to me, it's like, this is, this is not just a funny little TV show for us. This is our life. And we're going to get arrested potentially tomorrow. And you could either be with us or you could be against us or like most people just sit this one out. But you have to understand that that's a choice. And that happened. And then honestly, consistently happened everywhere I went. I would go to communities that were marginalized, that did not have a voice. And, you know, with The Daily Show, I, I would visit a lot of these communities, but I would drop in for an hour and get a story and go on back to tell that story. And I'd feel good about doing that. Here, I was with these people for a long enough period of time <laughs> that they really did impart on me. Like, you are, you see this up close and you understand that we are, we are begging to have the voice that you have. As a white guy with a TV show who's had multiple TV shows, you need to reckon with this. And, and however you do it, that's on you. And I heard that week after week. I heard that in a bayou with uh, indigenous women who were literally trying to get their voice out. I heard that dude in Native American piece in New Mexico with a man who was like, I was at Standing Rock and you weren't. And, that's, and now you're telling a story two years later. And I will tell you, as Jordan Klepper, the guy who does comedy on The Daily Show, I'm liberal. I'm making a difference, right? Mm. When you hear that, it is true. I was not there. And uh, I have to reckon with whether or not that was a privilege to not be there. And if I'm shining a light on other people who were in telling those stories, like be aware of who that storyteller is. And yet again, the Native American story was a great example of like, I'm listening to people talk about how forever white people have been telling the stories and writing the history of Native Americans. And I'm a white guy who's literally doing the same thing with my show. And I can make fun of that. And I think if I can open that up and be like, look at the flawed premise that I'm a part of right now. <laughs> I am a flawed premise. I know I'm trying to do good. I'm reading Letter from a Birmingham Jail. I'm, I'm trying to tell this story. I'm trying to tell it in the right way. But even the act that of telling the story isn't of itself privilege. I can't win. But hopefully... Well, hopefully putting that out there is something that people can, people are also reckoning with. I mean, as I talk to other people and other people that work on this show, I think this is a unique time where we have to reckon with that. And it doesn't make you bad, it doesn't, but it also doesn't make you good to be reckoning with it. So for me, and again, my, in my personal journey about this stuff, one of the things that's become clear is that, okay, if my first step was to try and lift up voices to not just, to, you know, to do a little bit of what you're doing, to, to put the focus on marginalized people, um, the next step is figuring out how do I not just like pass the megaphone for a minute, but how do I continue to make sure that this megaphone is going to be used by the people that really deserve it, that really haven't had it before? You know, so to that end, like the way that we, we try to, you know, the other people involved in this show, right? I try to have a lot of diversity there. Um, and that's all I can do. I, and it's not, you know, uh, it is what it is. It is It is a journey of its own. Um, but I'm curious, is that something also, like, are you trying to do this in your everyday life? Like, or in the life of the show? Are you are you looking to make your staff diverse? Are you looking to to make the, not just lift up a voice for an episode, but try to make sure that it, it carries beyond that? Uh, definitely. I mean, I think when I, when I uh, got to create a big full staff for the opposition, the show I was doing before this, 
you know, you're coming from a late night world that is not diverse, you know, and we were very proud, especially with the opposition, because we were one of the late night shows that had the most diverse writing room. We were 50-50 male and female, which is crazy that that has not at all been the case in late night comedy for for such a long time. Um, and even with this new show, like, obviously you need a diverse, uh, uh, diverse opinions to make a show. We try to address that. Uh, we don't always get it right. I think there was one episode that we do. We have a much smaller staff, so it's it's me, a few producers, and a couple writers. And there's also researchers and what have you, but we're very small, um, so people's voices have a, a lot of weight. And uh, we did a piece that was dealing with race, and uh, I, I sent another correspondent out with me, Kobe Labee, who worked with me on the the opposition, um, and he's he's wonderful. And he followed a uh, an all black activist open carry group, and I followed an all white activist open carry group. And we kind of started to compare both of those. And even in these discussions that we started to have, like he was, we got in fights about the ways in which we saw each group and we were really open about it. And I will give him credit because he was very articulate about the way in which the, the, the struggles he was having, even in an office with a white guy who's in charge telling his own story. And he's, he's the only other voice on the show. He's African-American. He's telling the story of this other African-American group. And he has the burden of explaining to every other white person on this show, like the things that he sees that other white people are not necessarily seeing in this group. And we try to articulate a little bit of that in the episode. To be honest with you, we ended up doing a podcast afterwards where we talked 45 minutes about like how hard it is to tell these stories. And I don't know if we told it correctly, to be totally honest with you. I think we did a good job with that. I think the podcast, we looked into it like it's hard. Mm. Even in, in a workplace environment, there is more responsibility put on people who have marginalized voices to speak up louder to contradict an already pr- pr- privileged narrative that might be happening in an office space. And I, I'd like to think that I'm attempting to address that day in and day out. It is a struggle, and I think like I'm I'm learning. I, I I'd like to get better and better with it. But each show I've been a part of and what have you, I think you have to you have to kind of put yourself out there to to be wrong so that you can try to eventually get closer to getting it right. I don't want to let you go without talking a little bit about the opposition because I loved it. Um, Thank you. I was such a fan, but I think one of the reasons I'm a, I was a fan is that I'm I was in the exact right demographic, which is to say, like I'm a very progressive liberal person who's also obsessed with the alt right and compl- and follows it very closely. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but that's like I feel like that's that's who really got the show right, like because it was a parody of kind of the 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 froth at the top of the alt right. You know, like exactly. it was you know, sort of elements of Alex Jones, elements of Glenn Beck, um, elements of, you know, uh, 4chan or whatever. Was that what was that like to do? Because that means you had to follow it, too. Right. Like you had to kind of be watching that world, that very toxic. Oh, God, world. yes. Oh, it, it was very toxic. My poor staff. I think we were all. We were watching Infowars. We were following Paul Joseph Watson. We were constantly on Breitbart. We're, you know, Reddit, uh, 4chan, yeah. all these places to try to get like, what, what is the fringe? What is the alt-right talking about right now? And it's really toxic. I think, you know, some of the difficulties were sometimes it got so dark that it was like, careful, we are the bad guys here and we are... We're, we're, we're heightening some of these points of view to make fun of them. But some of these points of view get toxic in a way that are we just amplifying a terrible point of view? Like... Uh, that was a constant road we were we were or uh, you know line we were we were we were walking, and I think it was it was tiring day in and day out. I loved it because I like to be able to, 
to try to get inside the head of, you know, even if you go into like Tucker Carlson and the victimization, <laughs> no. and like the war on men and all of this stuff to me was always so humorous to see somebody who felt so victimized. Again, we're talking a lot about privilege here. It's really fun to watch somebody who is so anti that narrative, uh, but with that privilege that it's, it's fun to play the flip side of it of like, woe is me, white guy with a television show, this as a man who's in power, oh, why is everybody coming at me? That was really cathartic <laughs> to play and, 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 and grapple with. Um, but it's it's a it's a dark place. And I think you started to see and still see, obviously, you know, the, the man in charge advocating for Paul Joseph Watson mm. and a lot of these voices on the fringe. And it started to get really depressing. You, you know, it's it felt less and less fringe as we we would go along. And I, I think you'd like to think that this thing could is is a part of our society that is starting to weed its way out, but instead it was weeding its way in. And I think that was that was hard to grapple with. Yeah. I mean, in the ideal situation, like your show, the opposition would need to exist, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think like as we, you know, as we were creating that show, it was, it was like, where do we see this Trump era going? And to me, it was like, oh, it's, it's going fringier. It's going farther right. It's going darker. It's more internet. It's more meme And it's, it's more hateful. And I think, no, I wish we were in a place where that wasn't what the internet was creating and what our culture was creating, but it, it very much is. And it's, it's very much not going away. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that is it for the show. Thank you for making time in your week to listen to us and to take us seriously, I hope. If you are listening to this show and interested in the kinds of things that I'm interested in, you are probably alarmed about those anti-choice pieces of legislation that are now rolling throughout the country. You might want to do something about it. I would like to suggest to you doing something that may not be your first thought, which is to give to the National Network of Abortion Funds which means giving money to a fund that allows people who could otherwise not afford an abortion to get one. The first time I heard of this, I felt a little queasy. The idea that, oh, I'm going to give money directly to someone who's getting an abortion. Put that aside. If you are pro-choice, you should be pro-choice for every woman that needs to make that decision for herself. And whether you have the funds or not, shouldn't matter. The National Network of Abortion Funds can be found at abortionfunds.org. Consider it. And that is it for the show. Please take care of yourselves. <laughs>